Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Today we'll be doing uh, Philippians 1, uh, 12 through 30. Uh, So this will be wrapping up chapter 1 of the letter of Philippians. We titled this one, uh, Preaching the Gospel and... living in Christ, which I think is appropriate for what Paul is trying to teach uh, the Philippian church during this time. Uh, Last time we reviewed the introduction to to Paul's letter uh, to the church in Philippi, and what we saw from that is he follows a very very much a Greco-Roman style of of writing, but adds a couple of his uh, personal touches, one of them being a specific prayer that he gives to the church, which he doesn't typically do. And remember this prayer to the church of to Philippi, but in the region of Macedonia. So we have to keep in mind as we go through this uh, that it is not all about just this a single church uh, in Philippi. It's for a, a more of a regional uh, church in that area. And it's not just a single church like we typically know in the Western churches today is, is, is more of a house, house churches, several house churches. And we'll be talking a little bit about that today related to uh, some of the leadership in those houses and some of the issues uh, that Paul was facing as he was, um, well, at least he wasn't facing because, of course, he was in Rome at the time, but information that he learned from Epaphroditus when Epaphroditus came from Philippi to Rome to share with Paul what was going on uh, in the Philippian church and then from there, be Paul be able to understand that there is some division in the Philippian church amongst some of the house leaders. Uh, the house leaders there could have been elders, they could have been deacons, uh, men or women, either ones. Uh, we know that Lydia was most likely a, a leader of one of the house churches. Uh, so we'll, we'll dig a little bit deeper into that and what that looked like uh, for Paul as he was writing back to them, and of course what it looked like uh, for the church as well. So how we'll start this is that we're going to uh, run through verses uh, 12 through 20 and then uh, have a quick discussion on that. And then from there, uh, go to the rest of the book, which would be 19, well, not, I'm sorry, 21 through 30 is how we'll look at that. So let me uh, first read uh, 12 through 20 and uh, then we'll move on, on from there. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, one of your translations or some of your translations may be uh, brothers or sisters, typically that's how that is looked at here, that my circumstances had turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment and the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. As you can see, that he's already bringing up the division here at this point. And he continues on going into verse 16. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope, I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. 
So Paul continues to celebrate. A better word, I guess, is said is rejoice in what he has, uh, what he is doing, and what the church of Philippi is doing related to the spreading of the gospel. He continues to provide details, uh, some additional detail. There, if we look into verse 12, uh, regarding his confinement in Rome, how even though he is restricted and changed, the gospel continues to move forward. And Paul will celebrate. He celebrated that in the last chapter. will continue to celebrate it in this chapter and rejoice in it, of course, as he goes uh, forward through the rest of the book. Uh, this is not about Paul telling about his own issues, his own trials and tribulations. Uh, he, they're informed about it, but it's ultimately what he's writing about is not him. But instead, he's encouraging the brothers and sisters of the church that in their trials that they're facing, uh, they can still be part of the furthering of the gospel. Even though there's division in these house churches, even though there's, there's oppression coming from the imperial guard there in Rome, they continue to, they can continue to spread uh, the gospel. <clears throat> uh, the use of brethren or brothers and sisters here is a sign of kinship as in a closeness that Paul has uh, with these people. Uh, he will use it multiple times to kind of show that there is an intimate partnership uh, with with this group, uh, and the partnership, of course, is the spreading of the gospel. Uh, even, as he says here in verse 12, even if his imprisonment continues, which he believes it will, at least until he faces uh, Caesar for his trial, he continues to rejoice in the work that he has done, uh, not only in the past, but what he continues to do as he remains there in, pri in prison. And he continues that going into verse 13, uh, that despite his bondage, and despite the issues that the Philippian church is facing, and you can even go further, despite the issues that the church in Ephesus or Galatia or Thessaloniki are facing, uh, they can continue to spread the gospel. And the gospel continues to be spread, even in goodwill or not. The, the gospel spreads and it moves forward. And the, the crazy part of this, even through the Imperial Guard, uh, also known as the uh, Praetorium, uh, which is a, a group, which first of all is a group that's holding him in, in prison, First of all, it's the ones who are holding him there in Rome uh, who are at the same time commanded to not worship any god uh, besides the divine emperor, Caesar. And, and they are even responding to the gospel. And he, we can dig a little bit more deeper into that. And this actually helps the debate about where, where Paul wrote uh, Philippians from because there is some who would say he wrote it in Ephesus, some saying he wrote it in Rome. I've, I've been on the side of saying that it was written most likely in Rome, probably, or sometime in the 60s, uh, 80s, 60s. Uh, <clears throat> and so anyways, he's talking about the Praetorium, also known as the, the Palace Guard. Uh, the question here uh, we want to understand is that is the Praetorium that he's referring to, is it a group of soldiers, which it could be, or is it a specific uh, location, which it also could be. Uh, the original use of the word of Praetorium was the governor's tent. Uh, it's also been used and eventually turned into the governor's palace. And so we're going to stick with that, that he's in, in Rome based on this. Uh, it wasn't probably until the first century that the word, so the word's Praetorium, and you probably also have heard of it as Praetorian. Uh, and that, that by the first century, uh, that's actually became known as the, not only a location, but the emperor's elite troops. Uh, and they were stationed in Rome. Uh, <clears throat> and so that's, this kind of helps us be able to 
probably better understand that. One thing we need to know, we know about these, that this Praetorian guard was guarding Paul, and they would guard him in four-hour shifts. And so every four hours, a new guard would come and attach himself to Paul, either through chains or however they were attaching themselves in those days, and which allowed access for Paul to not only uh, preach to people who they would allow come visit him, but also to be able to speak the gospel to the guard that was sitting next to him. And if you think every four hours, that's six guards in a day that are coming. And Paul, even though hopefully he probably, not hopefully, but maybe he slept a little bit uh, during that time. But anytime he was connected, literally, to somebody else, he was able to tell them about the gospel. Uh, like I said, that he was fortunate enough to allow people to come and visit him, uh, people to come and, and, and take care of him. Uh, there is a large Roman, uh, I'm sorry, in Rome, there is a large Jewish and a large Gentile population. Leaders from both those groups came and visited him, and you can learn more of that from, of course, the letter to the Romans and some of the issues that they were facing there. Uh, besides the, we're in 12 and 13 right now, uh, besides the Roman guard, the everyone that uh, Paul is referring to when he says everyone here... Uh, actually, it's everyone else there at the end of verse uh, 13. Uh, it must be a group outside of the Praetorium. But there's someone who had some sort of dealings with imperial affairs, at least that's our understanding. Probably, possibly even having uh, something to do with Paul's case uh, coming that was to come before Caesar. Uh, so even these people came to know the gospel through Paul's captivity. And so though, though he is to go before Caesar, he is showing that the lordship of Christ is superior to the power of Rome and its emperor. So you have to think about this. Paul is in the uh, is in the center of Roman power, but yet he is still allowed and still uh, spreading the gospel of Christ. And so, the use of him using Lord uh, during that time of like say for example Christ the Lord is a big deal. And the reason that's a big deal is because the emperor. Uh, wanted to be referred to as the Lord. And so it, Paul could, of course, get in a lot of trouble by referring to Christ as the Lord, when in fact they believed, the Romans believed that it was only Caesar or the emperor who was Lord. So he, he brings some political stuff into this, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a minute. <clears throat> as we look at the next two verses, 14 and 15, uh, and seeing that even in captivity, Paul can spread the gospel. Uh, the brothers and sisters in Rome, so these are who he's referring to here now as when he refers to the brethren or the brethren or brothers and sisters there, specifically in Rome and in that area. And they've become even more emboldened because they've seen what Paul has been able to do while in prison. So they thought, hey, if he can speak the new, good news in prison, though we're not in prison, we, we do have our own issues. We can continue to spread the good news as well in our own commu community. Again, this would be to their detriment. Uh, to, to be a, a, a Gentile Christian uh, in that time period would have not been good for their business. Uh, businesses would not have been good for their livelihood. Uh, many would have lost families, friends, uh, their way of life, uh, just, just any way of surviving by saying that I'm only going to worship Christ the Lord, this Christian Christ and Christian Lord, and I'm not going to worship the emperor. And so... This is a huge deal that they were really willing to do. And it was referred to, I mean, it was considered heresy against the emperor and the imperial court took a lot of, um, <clears throat> as you can imagine, issue with that. So if this is during the time of A.D., and I mean A.D. as in letters A-N-D, not 
18. Sometimes I think I'm saying 80, but it's AD. Anyways, when, when you think about it, it's AD 60. So Nero is most likely in charge. That's our understanding based on historical evidence of that time. And the madness of Nero is coming to its peak or is right at its peak. And the church at this time has become to fall under suspicion. I'm referring to the, the Gentile Christian church at this time has become under suspicion. And it, it would only be a couple years later that there would be a genocide or ethnic cleansing of the Christians there in Rome. So as you can imagine, there would be significant boldness required in order to want to continue to uh, have the desire and courage to, to preach the gospel. <clears throat> uh, the, the, the church in Philippi would not face this level of persecution that uh, the, the folks in Rome would face. But they had their own issues, of course, that they were dealing with here. So it's one of those things that Paul is telling them, hey, here in Rome, it's really bad. and It's going to get even worse. Uh, and you in Philippi, we understand it's, it's kind of bad. But if we can do it here, you guys can do it there. As in, we can, do, we can spread the gospel here. You can spread the gospel there. Uh, one, one thing we can notice also from this is that he does not name uh, the people, the fellow missionaries in Rome. Uh, but we know that they, they knew of Paul either through the words that he taught or had visited them. Uh, at one point, they, maybe they visited him while he was in prison. Either way, they continued to spread the gospel. So those who had known Paul and those who knew of Paul were uh, encouraged enough through what Paul was doing to spread the gospel. As we look into verse 15, uh, there are some who spoke against Paul uh, and opposed the words that Paul had taught. Uh, we don't believe that they were necessarily uh, Judaizers, as that's probably happened in Corinth and Galatia, uh, but people who are preaching another false gospel, most likely for their own benefit, which is something that would happen back then is that there would be pastors, preachers, uh, you know, traveling missionaries who would, who would preach a version of the gospel but the ultimate benefit or benefactor of that gospel they taught was them themselves. And Paul was very aware of that. Uh, and some would say, well, look at Paul. He's in prison. Uh, obviously, he's done something wrong. So he's, he taught the false gospel So because he's, that's why he's in prison. But we, we are not in prison. So obviously, we're teaching the right gospel. And so that's some of the things that he was having to, to deal with as they uh, went through this. Because they're saying, well, God's obviously judging Paul because... People back then believed that gods did that directly, especially some of our Jewish friends, and it, as well as our, some of our pagan believers. And so that was something that they was, they, it was a pretty good case they could build against Paul to be able to say something like that. <clears throat> uh, ultimately, what Paul knew, though, is that, well, they can say all they want, but, and even they're helping spread a version of the gospel. Not, not the correct one, but people are listening to a point uh, but he's like, at the same time, he's like, well, I'm still here in prison, and I'm able to spread the gospel as well, and it will continue to do that. Paul continues on into, into verses in 16 uh, through 18, kind of deciphering or kind of uh, breaking apart the two groups that he sees out there in Rome, some who are preaching the gospel well and some who are preaching it to their own benefit. <clears throat> and this is something I think we can be concerned with uh, even, even today is are you we are, when we teach the gospel are we teaching it for the benefit of the kingdom of god or are we teaching it because we have some of our own desires our own needs that we think we need to get met our own arrogance uh, what what why is it that we get on a stage why is it that we teach people why is it that we want to communicate with people is it just to be right is it to is it to benefit ourselves as us for us to feel uh, powerful, uh, feel needed. Uh, what is our motivation behind that? And that's something that uh, Paul was trying to bring out 
to the motivation is to spread the good news of who Jesus is. The motivation is not to line our pockets. It's not to give us power, prestige. It's not to uh, set us apart in a way that makes us puts us on a pedestal uh, over other people. And so Paul is <clears throat> trying to make that point as we look through verses 16 through 18. Ultimately, as we see in verse 18, his only concern again, and this might sound, sound redundant, but Paul repeated a lot of stuff in his. Uh, a lot of ideas throughout his letter, and it is that the gospel is to be preached. Even seemingly saying that no matter the motivation of either type of the missionary, the gospel is still proclaimed, and for that he rejoices. Even if someone is doing it out of selfish, amb- selfish ambition, he still rejoices because he knows that the gospel is being heard. <clears throat> uh, for those who have studied uh, Paul's letters, we know that the gospel is uh, the number one thing for him. But he also, besides just getting the gospel out there, uh, if you've read his other letters, you see that there's issues that he brings up related to character, commitment, and the conduct of believers. There's a certain way a believer in Christ uh, should live and act. And that part of that he also refers to as the fruit. Uh, what fruit is that person producing? And so Paul uh, continues with that. It's, it's not just that he, that person speaks well and is speaking the gospel well as in saying the right words, it is, is that a person of character? Is that a person of integrity? Is that a person of love? Is that someone who's fully committed to the kingdom of God? As we'll see in chapter 2, where Paul will bring up issues around the congregation uh, who, who are falling into these selfish ambitions, uh, but he, he encourages them instead for the fruit, for fruit that they're producing, and he encourages them ultimately to the love of one another over their own selfish ambition. <clears throat> So as we, one thing I wanted to bring back is um, <clears throat> the, well, I don't know if I want to do that. Let's see here. Let's see. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess it would make sense. Uh, so we, we talked about Nero, who is persecuting uh, the, 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 the believers at that time. If you go back, back years, several decades, even centuries even, uh, we would see that and recognize uh, that the Jewish faith was recognized as an approved religion for uh, for the, the the Romans. The Romans believed that okay, you know what? If we can keep this Jewish group happy, and you can see this all going back, like I said, years, and they're not causing problems, and they're kind of focused on their one God. Okay, um, they just can't cause any problems. If they cause any problems, the deal's over. So we let's set this deal with the. Jewish people. It's in it's a, a approved religion, and they had those during that time. The issue was is that this new sect, this new group referring to them as Christians, uh, some would say that it's coming out of the Jewish faith, so yeah, it's okay. They can continue to do their thing, and for a while that was okay. But eventually it became so separate from the Jewish faith that it was like, well, this isn't really Jewish anymore. It's another religion, and it's heretical, so we need to stomp it out, or we need to keep it from continuing. <clears throat> and so the idea was, is okay, if these people are only going to focus on Jesus, uh, they're committing, uh, we would say they, they would say they're committing treason. And so it's quite an issue that they were having to face uh, as they went through this. Let's, uh, let's continue on into uh, verses 18 through 20. 
Uh, though Paul's facing the issues outlined that we just outlined above with the persecution and the issues with uh, is this faith, the Jewish faith or not a Jewish faith, uh, Paul continue again, continues to rejoice uh, because he knows that uh, he will be delivered. He knows that the believers will be delivered. And some would also refer to this as they would be saved or salvation is what would happen here. Uh, what type of salvation is debated? Uh, sometimes I think in our Western mindset, it automatically goes to uh, salvation as in we're saved forever and we've stamped our, um, our ticket into heaven. And, and so that's, that, that could be one way to look at it. Uh, but some also could say what Paul is referring to is his salvation from the detention in which he was in. So he will no longer be a prisoner so he can be free to spread the gospel and not be imprisoned while he's spreading the gospel. So that's one way to, to think of it. And of course, like I said, the other one is uh, an ultimate salvation for all believers uh, of, of, of Jesus Christ. No, no matter the choice here, what we know is that Paul's desire is to live as he's lived uh, and to be someone who lives and spreads the gospel, uh, to guide the Philippians and to rejoice in the spread of the word. <clears throat> as we continue on here, uh, let's talk a little bit more about... Um, Oh, well, we're not going to talk about that today. Let's ex- let's uh, go forward. Actually, let's take a quick step back into verse 19 uh, before we go on into the, the next section here uh, and look at the, the use of knowing this. So if you go look back into verse 19, you see, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He uses two words here. He uses know and this. So it seems that Paul is convincing that his present circumstance, which is the this that he's referring to, is temporary and will lead to a future salvation. Again, that salvation debate goes back to, is it salvation from his bonds or salvation from, you know, salvation for forever for the kingdom? And so why is this? So as discussed last week regarding prayer, is the prayer of others, or in this case, the prayers of the Philippians and others in the power of the Holy Spirit that we're seeing here. We know that the prayers and the Spirit will strengthen us in times of hardship and despair. It makes us stronger in the present and to focus on the future. We then, from this current situation, show back to verse 20 and get a sense of Paul's hope in God. This is the hope that will embolden him. And goes on trial whenever he is put, you know, it's kind of shame is put upon him, but he's going to continue to speak uh, the gospel as he goes forward here. All right, let's look at the next section from 21 through 30. To live as Christ or living in Christ. So Paul continues here, and he does this uh, to live versus die. Uh, scenario, and he kind of has this, almost it seems like an internal argument uh, with himself as he writes this, something that he's been trying to process of what it is to live in Christ, what it is to, to die to yourself, what is it to die for the re- purpose of the gospel, or to, to survive and continue to spread the gospel. So let's look at this a little bit. So verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am, I am hard-pressed for both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. See the, the back and forth he's doing? Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all for the progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. 
When we conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That gospel unity is what Paul is referring to here. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So, let's uh, cover this a little bit. Here we are to witness Paul's consuming and steadfast love and sacrificial devotion to Christ. Uh, where he explains, exclaims this verse, uh, he exclaims in this verse of what he is trying to contemplate, what he's trying to figure out. Live, to live is die. And so it's one of those things we've, we've used verse 21 many times in the past. People have, for me to live in, is Christ and to die is gain. And people have been trying to dissect uh, this verse uh, since Paul wrote it and delivered it. And Epaphroditus delivered it to the Philippian church. And I would say that their, their viewpoint back in that context was a little bit different than ours is today because ours is many times put on a coffee mug or onto a wall and is taken very much lightly than what Paul was in initially intending this to be. So we're seeing, a, like I said, Paul's uh, consuming and steadfast love and sacrificial devotion to Christ and the purpose of Christ, not to himself, not to the people in Philippi, but to Christ. And so that's a big difference. And sometimes we, we lose that focus on Christ and we focus on ourselves or we focus on loved ones, which, and we focus on the things that are going on at the church or just the church itself. But the thing is, our focus needs to be on Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here and what is he's leading to. Um, <clears throat> some would wonder and possibly argue that this phrase was his go-to phrase, this this idea for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. Some can think of it as like his brand statement because he most likely said it many other times than just here when he's trying to encourage the churches uh, that he met with. So let's dig, on, dig into this a little bit on the theological side of Paul's reasoning. So Paul uses phrases like this throughout his writings, uh, such as Romans 6 and in Galatians 2, where he believes uh, that he no longer lives but it is Christ living in him. Uh, Christ has become a believer's life. A believer is hidden in Christ so that others see Christ in the actions of a believer. The fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that that person develops is Christ working through that person. And so we are to take a step back while Christ in us takes a step forward is what Paul is uh, referring to here. Uh, Christ's resurrection is a promise that Paul believes that when you are able to die in Christ, or when you are to die in Christ, you'll be raised with Christ through the resurrection. Just like Christ was raised through the resurrection, we will all be resurrected uh, at one point. So Romans 14, uh, 7 through 8, may help us a bit, as this is where Paul writes that we live, uh, we are to live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Uh, whether we live or die, we are doing it for Christ the Lord. <clears throat> Verses 22 through 23, uh, Paul continues the idea or this, this back and forth of the idea of the flesh and departing to be with Christ in these two verses. And it's obvious through this that it would be his ultimate desire uh, to really want to be with Christ. Uh, and he wants, he's, but he's contemplating that. And some people say, is he talking about suicide? And I would say, no, he, they, he wasn't, 
he didn't process the world in that way. It wasn't like, I'm going to kill myself to be with Christ. He, he sees that he has a purpose. He has a purpose here on earth. And he knows, as we see in verse 22, uh, that as he continues his work on earth, that the fruit of his labor will continue to grow, will continue to be seen. And then others will be able to, to take what he's taught and go forward and to go forward and to go forward uh, with that and to where we are t- today. Uh, Paul also knows that he has chosen a hard and painful path. And that many days it feels there's no fruit uh, from his efforts. That, and I think many of us feel like that some days. That we've, It seems like we've done the work that we've been called to do, but we see nothing of any sort of what we believe to be fruit out of it. But that's really not our call um, uh, in our determination if, if that is fruit is, is born or not. Uh, so that's something to think about as well. Uh, with this, Paul seems to have a deep desire to be with Christ or to be at home with the Lord, as we know from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, he sees time with Christ to be much better than his current circumstance. I would imagine that would be true, and I imagine a lot of us would could say that, or if believers would, could make that argument very strong, they'd be great to be with Christ uh, right now. Uh, but at the same time, Christ within us, Christ above us, behind us, among us. Uh, some have argued that these verses point to Paul, like I said, uh, possibly wanting to commit suicide. Uh, a plain text reading of this, some people would could take that in that direction. But pulling the context back into the letter of the time in which he existed, uh, this letter is, is about joy and rejoicing in the courage in, in what Paul is teaching and rejoicing in what we know about Sorry about that. Uh, let's continue on to verses 24 through 26 as we go through here. It, it seems that Paul's preference to being with Christ in communion is clear. However, it seems here he does not want to hasten his departure from his community as he seems as necessary for him to remain with the church in Philippi. So no matter what Paul's desire is to uh, be with Christ, as in to be literally with Christ in Christ's presence, uh, he believes that his call is there to be with the church in Philippi. In verse 25, it is, it is the hope of Paul's coming again uh, that will embolden the Philippian church to them to know that there's this, this leader of theirs who is rejoicing in the spread of the gospel and encouraging them will someday be back with them. A, a bit of a side note here is what Paul's going, doing, going through here in verses 18 through 26 is referred to as a, you could refer to as a feigned perplexity. Uh, it is a literary, uh, literary rhetorical trope uh, where the author writes about the uncertainty of the times in order to strengthen his argument. So some have argued that Paul is exaggerating his indecisiveness uh, for rhetorical effect. That could be possible. I mean, it was something that was used back then to make a point uh, uh, to, to help get people's attention and continue to be used today by other writers. So with that said, we have to remember that he is currently in, uh, in prison is currently a prisoner in Rome and was in shackles, showing us that, uh, that he was in a relatively dire position. So take this as he will if he was exaggerating 
or not. What I believe we can take from this last, last section of scriptures, uh, verses from 18 through 26, is that Paul continues to show himself as the model of the gospel, and he lived out the gospel and was willing to die to proclaim the gospel. Remember, Paul had no promise that he would go free from Rome. The Romans were in control of his fate, so it is this hope that he is become does become free. Um, but, in fact, is not. <clears throat> Sorry. Continue on, verses 27 through 30. Uh, Paul changes his viewpoint a bit here as he continues on and how the church at Philippi should should live as Christian citizens. As we move to the final section of this chapter, uh, we see that it is Paul's belief that he will someday be back with the Philippian church. Uh, We do know that it... it, it, We do not know if it happened or not. There's no really uh, evidence saying that he made it back to Philippi after his time. In Rome, but the point is again not not about Paul or his situation. Uh, his ultimate concern is that the church continues, in his presence or not, uh, to be able to prosper and continue to spread the gospel. Uh, one word we want to point out here as we look at this in verse twenty-seven is the use of uh, conduct or or live. <clears throat> which in Greek is polituomai. Polituomai, yeah. Uh, it, is, it is only used again one other time, and, and that's not even in this letter, but in Acts chapter 23, verse 1. It, it is believed to be a, an, an imperative, saying that to, to live as a citizen, and this has carried a political overtones in the past, since Philippi was part of Rome, as you remember, is a Roman colony. And this is the only time Paul uses uh, this word. We can conclude that he is, what he's trying to do here, is making a point that they are to live as citizens in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ and not to live like other citizens of the Roman Empire, those who had not come to faith in Christ. So they're to live in a different way, to live as citizens, some would say citizens of heaven, citizens of the gospel, citizens of those who follow Christ. So to remember that their uh, citizenship is with Christ, not just in Philippi. Of course, they need to be good, civil, uh, obedient people there in Philippi, but at the same time, their citizenship is also with Christ. Uh, We could parallel this with Philippi as a colony or even outpost of the Roman Empire. Uh, The Philippi church uh, was an outpost uh, also for heaven, uh, outpost for uh, Christians, uh, and, and, or a, you think of it as a heavenly colony. So Paul is saying, okay, so you have Rome as the main one, and then you have Philippi as a colony. Okay, you have heaven, and now you have Philippi, and you can have that citizenship going like that as well. At the end of verse 27, uh, they are to stand firm in the Holy Spirit in one mind and focus of spreading the gospel. Uh, they have a lot going against them, as we've talked about before, but yet they're to stand firm and to be steadfast in the pagan culture in which they exist. We're called to be the same, to be, st- to be strong and steadfast in the culture in which we live in and to be, to be beacons of light, to be people who love one another. 
And that is what Paul is calling for, for people to continue to spread the gospel even when it is hard. Uh, the struggle they face, Paul tries to put in, say, athletic terms through the use of the word, oh, I'm not going to say that right today, uh which means a struggle that it would have been, say, in an in a athletic in an arena. Uh, the struggle could be anything related to the dangers of infighting within the church or dealing with fears brought out by church, people outside of the church or fears from people brought within the church and how they are to uh, struggle with that and figure out what those issues are and to, to work that out. Uh, though it is not made explicit, we can determine from socioeconomic context of the time uh, that the external struggles facing the church were from most likely from non-Christians and the issues with Christian involvement and civic duties. It is believed that many followers of Christ faced, uh, like I've said before, not only in Rome, but in Philippi and other parts in which the Christian church really started taking hold, uh, faced economic ruin, social ostracism, and physical suffering at the hand of the non-Christian uh, Philippians. So you can get a sense that that is going on here as well. In, in verse 28, we can determine that if they hold strong and steadfast to the Lord, they will get through this, but there will be destruction against those who go against God, uh, God's church in Philippi. As Paul has done before, Paul turns the plight of the Philippian church as a divine privilege, albeit at a great cost. Uh, Paul believes that, and is teaching the church that they can believe in Christ and will suffer for Christ. Uh, so how can this type of grace uh, be good? The suffering of Christ, how can the suffering for Christ be good? It's not Paul just trying to twist a bad experience into something that can look good. It's not a, a greenwashing of sorts or a grace washing. Uh, it, it is is from the belief that Paul believes that all things work together for good, as we know from Romans 8.28. And that is Paul's belief is that no matter, even if it's good or if it's bad, easy or hard, all things will work according to, uh, to uh, or work for good. Uh, <clears throat> and that's what we see. Uh, that's when people have questions about pain and suffering and, and other issues that we face that God, we can't say that God causes, but happens in a broken world. God can use that to further his gospel. God can use that to further our faith in who he is. Uh, as we go into the final two verses of 29 and 30, we know that Paul faced a lot of uh, issues in, in enmity, hostility, uh, and opposition on his journey. We know from Acts 16 that his initial visit to Philippi was not a great one, and he faced a bit of hostility. Uh, in, in this final verse of the chapter, Paul uh, takes the opportunity to further connect his suffering with that of what the church is facing. His past and present agony is tied to them as they are going towards the same goal. Uh, they are very aware of Paul's suffering, and were very aware of their own. Uh, this suffering was noticed by God, and God is with them. As we know, God helped and comforted uh, Paul along the way, and God will do the same for the church in Philippi, and that is the promise that we see throughout this chapter. If they were to endure uh, this situation, they must put suffering in the proper perspective, much like Paul had, in order to continue to spread the gospel. There has to be a mindset that they have to have. Uh, they have to be able to set their and center their faith in a way that knowing that even though it's going to be hard, uh, they can continue to spread the gospel and God is with them. And Paul has taught that through this entire chapter. <clears throat> so as we go into next time, will be chapter 2. We'll uh, hit probably just the first half of that and then do another half the next week. Uh, but yeah, Philippians chapter 2 next time. I hope everyone uh, has a good week. Thank you. 
We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.